0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
1: Major Garrett.
0: Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
2: Welcome to the Rare Best Part of my Broadcast Week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Every week we talk to really interesting, smart people about important issues, all with the purpose of learning and understanding more about the world we live in. And we're going to do that in a very big way this week with two people who work closely with me and everyone else at CBS. We rely on them to talk about one of the biggest topics the globe is facing right now, which is climate change and its consequences in the lived experience of human beings across the planet. Jeff Berardelli is our meteorologist, one of our meteorologists at CBS, and a climate specialist. And Ben Tracy, formerly a colleague of mine who covered the White House, was our Beijing Bureau Chief for a while. He's now our Chief Environmental Correspondent. Gentlemen, it's great to have you with us. Say hello. Hey, Major. Thanks for having us.
3: Yep, it's great to be here. And you said you said, you said said we were interesting. No one's ever called me that before.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. You, sir, are interesting. So, Jeff, I want to start with you, because every time people who watch CBS see us introduce you, we say meteorologist and climate specialist. How did you become a climate specialist? What's your background?
3: So, uh, several years ago, when I saw the dire need for uh, more climate change in the media. I left my job, it's a full-time job as a chief meteorologist down in Florida, covering hurricanes constantly, uh, and went and got my master's degree from Columbia University in climate change. And the goal was to try to get the networks uh, and our network in particular uh, to do more climate change coverage, just because you know, I could see on my weather maps five, six, seven years ago, wow, what was happening in the Arctic, especially, it was really bad. And I'm thinking this should be plastered on the front page of the Washington Post and the New York Times. And it's not. So we need to get the word out there. So that's that was that's how I ended up where I am uh, to really hopefully educate uh, the public on what's going on. And it's not great.
2: And when you went to get that degree and diploma, what what kind of things did you learn? What was it that made you through a degree process, an education system process, a climate specialist? Essentially, what did you learn that you didn't know before?
3: That's a good point. So I already had a bachelor's degree in meteorology and atmospheric sciences. What I went there for was to kind of get a well-rounded education, Uh, you know, multifaceted. I took a class in climate law. I took a class in climate sociology. I took, you know, I learned uh, about climate solutions. So the point was not so much that I needed more schooling in the science. Of course, I had that already. The point was to kind of get a more well-rounded worldview of climate change and, and all of the ways that it impacts society. So my degree is actually called climate and society.
2: Got it. Ben Tracy, uh, this is a new beat for you, but I know you wanted to do this work. I know you've traveled extensively around the world in your other jobs, both as a journalist and with CBS. What is it about this that drives you to m- make this coverage as much a part of CBS's news product morning and evening as it is.
1: Well, exactly for the reason Jeff just said. I mean, this is critical. This is about the future of the planet. And sometimes that can seem alarmist, but that's exactly what we're talking about. It's what kind of world are we going to live in? What kind of world will uh, our children and grandchildren live in? Um, So to help kind of explain some of these things to people, I'm just really grateful that we're investing time and resources into going out in the country and showing people not only the problems, but also some solutions that are being developed. And there are some out there. Um, and we're, we're trying to find those and bring them to people so they don't get this feeling that, you know, all hope is lost.
2: Right. And I know both of you have a optimistic side of you when you look at technology, when you look at the changing political dynamic, when you look at the way people are discussing and thinking about this issue differently than they did 10 or 15 years ago, how corporations have sort of at least partially leaned in on this. And we're going to get to that component part of the conversation momentarily. But Jeff first and then Ben uh, Jeff, this summer, we are recording this conversation, the very final week of August, this summer has seen excruciating images, most recently in Tennessee, dozens of people killed in flash floods, there were these horrific flash floods in Germany, not once in a hundred year phenomena, once in a more than hundreds of years, maybe once in a millennia phenomenon, In my beloved western part of the United States, fires are still burning out of control in California. Last week, we talked to Lucy Walker about her documentary about that, Bring Your Own Brigade. So, Jeff, again, first, if you could link what people saw this summer, experienced, and in some cases lived through, and the relationship to climate change.
3: Well, first, I'll just say, as as someone who studied weather my whole life, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, that's how crazy the weather is this summer. It's not just your imagination. It's not just media or social media. It is the fact that it's actually the case. Yeah, the Tennessee floods uh, are less frequent than a once-in-1,000-year event. That means if you live there for over 1,000 years, you may may experience something like that once. The uh, European floods once-in-400-year event made up to nine times worse by climate change. Um, You know, so the bottom line here, and this really is this simple, the atmosphere is warmer, We have, and the oceans are warmer. We have more energy in the system. When you have more energy, everything is spiked and enhanced and made worse. That is the case with floods, because the atmosphere can hold more moisture. We also think the jet stream may be kind of becoming more loopy and slowing down, causing systems to slow. That's what happened in Tennessee. That's what happened in Europe. That's what happened in New York City, actually, uh, with a little extension from Henri. And what's happening in the West is that because we're warming the soil, it's not so much that less rain is falling. It is true. We're in a drought right now, and that may change in 10 years where we'll get more rain. What's not going to change is air temperatures continue to warm, so we evaporate a lot more moisture from the soil. And so everything dries out. Vegetation dries out. The ground dries out. we Our, our water resources dry out, as you've seen in Ben Tracy's stories out there, and I'm sure he'll talk more about that. And it causes exponential growth in fires. I mean, look at what's happening in California right now. Three huge fires, two of them over 100,000 acres, one of them over 700,000 acres, which may grow to the largest fire ever in California history. And of course, you guessed it, last year was the largest uh, complex fire in California history.
2: And Ben, you see the human consequences of this. You talk to people who are experts in this field from a lot of different perspectives, How would you characterize or try to explain to one of your closest friends what the summer has been like?
1: You know, I keep saying, people keep asking me about what's happening out west because I've spent a lot of time out there in the last couple of months. And, you know, from just your regular person to the scientists who are really in the weeds on this, they're very concerned because exactly what Jeff just said, they're having uh, precipitation is falling more as rain than snow. So it's not stored up in the mountains to flow into those reservoirs when they need it. And because it is so dry out there, the same amount of precipitation doesn't lead to the same amount of water in a reservoir anymore because it basically just gets sucked into the ground because everything is so dry. So they're no longer talking about, you know, kind of pray for rain. Let's see what happens. They're talking very seriously about adaptation. What do we do in the future? Because they view this as much closer to what's going to be normal for them than some anomaly uh, that they're currently going through. You know, we keep saying a drought. But a drought is something that tends to have a beginning and an end. Um, But this could be something that's more severe than that, that this could just be where they're headed uh, for the decades to come.
2: And Ben, for the benefit of our audience, I want to let them know that you've had some lived experience with this in other parts of the world, specifically China, and you've traveled to India. Tell my audience in the last minute we have before we have to go to break what that was like.
1: Um, You know, obviously, you're seeing those impacts in those places, too. You know, these these massive Chinese cities that have been built uh, just in the last decade or so, they weren't really built to be resilient for some of the impacts that they're now seeing. They're seeing these massive floods similar to what you mentioned uh, happened in Europe. Um, But you know what? The thing that I've really been struck by this summer, I just flew into Denver uh, about a week ago for a story we were doing. It looked like flying into Beijing. Uh, You know, with all that pollution in the air, this from wildfires, not just from man-made pollution. But you couldn't even see the mountains in in Denver, in downtown Denver. You couldn't see anything. Um, So we're experiencing these things firsthand now. And it was something that everybody we came in contact with was talking about. So I think people are seeing this summer these impacts in a way that perhaps they haven't felt them as acutely before.
2: That is the voice of Ben Tracy, and Jeff Berardelli joins him for our conversation about climate change and how it's affecting and influencing all of us. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just one second.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout.
1: Ben Tracy. Ben, what is your title Uh, My title is kind of clumsy. It's uh, Senior National and Environmental Correspondent. There we go. Titles matter.
2: And Jeff Berardelli, as I've said before, meteorologist, climate specialist for CBS. So folks uh, watching on CBSN and and listening, but especially watching, I'm pulling up a photocopy of the cover of what is called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Climate Change 2021, the Physical Science Basis, Summary for Policymakers. Jeff Berardelli, what is that?
3: So that's been going on since 1990. The world came together you know, in the late 80s and decided, hey, climate change is gonna be an issue. We have to come together as an international group and try to figure out, first of all, how to make sure that we understand the science and then what we do following that. So they've been putting out reports every five or six years, give or take, uh, since that time. Uh, this is AR6, so assessment report six, it's a six one. Uh, and this was the science report. So this is basically a compilation of all the science that's been done over the past several years, built on a foundation of the science that's been done over the past several decades. And so it's what we know, um, what we're clear on, what we still have to learn about. And it's, it's quite a large document. Um, but it, it, it's no new, there's no new research in it. It's just the research that's been done by scientists all over the world over the past few years that experts will look at and say, this is our degree of confidence. And and this is how we see humans are impacting the climate. And and there's a lot. It's hurricanes, it's floods, it's it's heatwaves.
2: I'm going to read some top-line conclusions from the first uh, few pages of this Climate Change 2021 report. But first, Jeff, for my audience's benefit, are there those who still disbelieve IPCC reports? Are there skeptics? Are there deniers? Are there those who say the science is still wobbly.
3: There are some. It's about seven or eight percent of the population, so it's not huge. It's typically very, very conservative folks. Uh, believe it or not, there's a counter IPCC report. Literally, there's an organization, a think tank that puts out a counter IPCC report. I don't know if they did it this year, but they did it in the past. But the thing is, is um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a waning percentage of the population. The vast majority. Believe that climate change is happening. But where there's some gray area is that a a large percentage of people think that they're not certain if it's being caused by humans. But I can tell you that 99 and greater percent of scientists believe and know that climate change is being caused by humans. If you ask people that question, they'll say, Oh, climate scientists are split 50-50. That is not the case. There is almost unanimous uh, uh, understanding that climate
2: change is caused by humans. All right. Uh, uh, ben, I'll get to you in just a second, but I want to run one thing uh, more by Jeff. So this is A11 from the IPCC report. I'm going to read it to you. Observed increases in well mixed greenhouse gas concentrations since around 1750 are unequivocally caused by human activities, reaching annual averages of 410 parts per million for carbon dioxide. 186 parts per billion for methane and 332 parts per billion for nitrous oxide. What does that mean?
3: Well, these are greenhouse gases that we're releasing through the burning of fossil fuels. Now, you might ask, how do we know this is the highest that these gases have been? Like carbon dioxide is the highest it's been in at least 2 million years. How do we know that? Scientists can go back and look at ice cores from Greenland, from Antarctica. They can look at sediment cores down in the bottom of the ocean, and they can actually see preserved bubbles of air. They can then analyze those bubbles of air and they can see that used to be that the parts per million, so the amount of carbon dioxide molecules per million molecules, used to be 280 back in the 1800s. Now it's 415. So we've seen a dramatic increase in such a short period of time. And I'll just emphasize it's that rate of change that's a big problem. It's not the change. If it happened over thousands of years, it wouldn't be a big deal, but it's happening over literally decades and centuries which really complicates matters in terms of us adapting and mitigating.
2: So, Ben, to you, uh, A-1-2 from the same document, each of the last four decades has been successively warmer than any decade that preceded it since 1850. That sounds like exactly what you were talking
1: to us about in segment one. Exactly. I mean, basically, the report is saying that this, this hotter future is basically locked in, um, but how hot it gets is still up to us. It's, it's it, to turn a phrase, baked in. Exactly. You know, Jeff mentioned methane. I was just out in Colorado doing a story about a new satellite they're about to launch to, to track methane leaks around the world. And methane, you know, CO2, carbon dioxide gets all the headlines when we talk about climate change and global warming. But methane is actually about 84 times more powerful at warming the atmosphere than CO2. And the one good part of methane though, is it doesn't stay up in the atmosphere as long. So if we could cut those emissions dramatically right now, we could actually slow down warming quicker. Um, So that's a big focus of scientists right now to see if we can do that to at least kind of triage uh, the situation we have on our hands. And
2: Ben, I want you to uh, share with the audience some of your reporting experiences with farmers, because we sort of think of farmers, accurately as salt of the earth types uh maybe a little conservative in their values or perspectives they produce vast amounts of food but they're also if you want to put this in sort of in appropriately militaristic terms, they're on the front lines of this. You talk to them, they don't deny this. They are experiencing it and they're also having to adapt, true?
1: Yeah, you, the farmers that I've talked to throughout the years, I mean, really in the last decade, because I covered a lot of drought and environmental issues out in California when I was based out there, you don't hear from farmers this debate over climate change. These are people who work the land year in and year out and they can tell something has changed. I mean, they're experiencing that, as you say, firsthand. Um, We interviewed a farmer up in the Central Valley of California, uh, one of many who is letting fields go fallow because there's just simply not enough water. The state's not delivering the water that these farmers thought they were going to get because the reservoirs are empty. And just to show you how quickly this is happening out there, the farmer that we talked to, his reservoir is the San Luis Reservoir, which is just up the road uh, in the Central Valley of California. When we talked to him, that reservoir was at 30% of its capacity. I just looked the other day because now I'm a nerd and I go on and look at these reservoir levels every day. It's down to about twelve percent, twelve percent of its capacity. Um, So this is a critical issue out there in California. You know, the West isn't going to get rain if it does until this fall, and that's still a questionable thing. So Jeff, because
2: I grew up in California and I love the state and I love the people who live there and I can't stop thinking about what they're going through and have gone through this summer. If you could answer the question, why is what's happening in California happening, both with less snow, infrequent rain, longer droughts, more wildfires?
3: I mean, you know, a lot of it has to do with a warmer atmosphere and just an evaporation of moisture from the soil. Ben mentioned that the ground is thirstier now as well. Uh, That's a problem. And also, there's been a population boom. In California and all across the West, using up water resources, we have to figure out how to do that more efficiently. And that's the good news, right? That's something that we can help to manage. Uh, But the bad news is is, as long as we continue to warm the atmosphere, we're going to continue to dry out the soil. Fires will continue to get worse. And as we've seen in California, there are climate refugees now. People that are migrating within the state, displaced within the state or, or actually moving out of the state. You know, and, and insurance companies and mortgage companies increasingly are not going to be able to see themselves being able to, you know, support insurance on certain homes and or mortgages, too. Uh, and with that said, or very, very expensive to get insurance on on homes. So uh, this is becoming a real issue.
2: And Jeff, uh, before we go to break, about 50 seconds Talk to my audience about the exponential quality of this. That is to say, gradual, gradual, then things move rapidly.
3: I mean, for every increase in, in degree uh, Celsius, let's say, or Fahrenheit, we see an exponential increase in acreage burnt in the West. And and we see that, right? I mean, you know, just several, several years ago, we thought the fire was bad. Now, we look back and we say, wow, it, it is increasing exponentially. You can see it with your own eyes. You don't even need the math and the science to know. Uh, you know, Like I said, last year, we had the largest you know fire in california history it's a complex fire this year the dixie fire is not even a complex fire it's already up to 700 plus thousand acres so you know and and as ben said we don't generally get rain in california until the end of fall sometimes it's delayed. late it's been more delayed lately which means that you know this fire has the capacity to grow to the largest ever in california history
2: jeff barradelli ben tracy of course you're going to stay with us i hope the audience will too stay tuned for segment three of the takeout in just one second
3: CBS News.
0: This is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to the program. Ben Tracy, our chief environmental reporter. He's got a long title, elaborately so. We talked about that in segment two. Go back to that if you want to immerse yourself in his title. Jeff Berardelli, uh, meteorologist, climate specialist for CBS News. So I'm going to continue reading from the IPCC. That is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Ben, this I'm going to read. a 14 Human influence is very likely the main driver of the global retreat of glaciers since the 1990s and the decrease in Arctic sea ice area between 1979 and 1988 and 2010 and 2019. Um, What does that mean? And do you have any reporting experience about that?
1: I'm about to get some. We might go to Iceland and do a piece about uh, some glaciers retreating there. Um, But no, so far I have not actually been up there personally. But it's obviously a huge issue. I mean, what was really nice about this report was that it was very clear about the impact of human caused climate change. You know, we're not having that debate anymore about how much of this is human caused. There were some real specifics in there that I think people can finally look at and say, you know, not only are we causing this, but here's to the degree to which we are. Um, And obviously, the the ice sheets, the glaciers melting, the big issue that comes with that is sea level rise and sea level rise is going to cause more coastal flooding uh, all around the world. Um, So those are huge issues. And if you want to just kind of like get a sense of what's going on in that in that part of the world right now, for the first time ever, there was rain on the peak of the Greenland ice sheet that just happened a couple of days ago. I mean, things like that, that have just never happened in in history. We're experiencing these things for the first time. So, you know, these impacts are, are real and they're becoming uh, much more prevalent. And Jeff Berardelli and Ben Tracy, uh,
2: I want our audience to know that if they want to dive more deeply into this, I talked to both of you for a two part audio documentary on climate change for my debrief podcast. If you go to the debrief on all great podcast platforms, you can find those two episodes a very, very deep dive into all the ramifications of all this, but I wanted to have this conversation for the benefit of our takeout audience. Jeff, uh, one of the things that flows through all of this is that it's, as I, as I understand it, it's not just, it's not so much, well, what's the amount of precipitation? It's when does it come? How is it different than it used to be, the, let's say more rain or more snow? And in volumes in shorter periods of time, which causes greater effects on the ground. Am I am on to something there, is that about right?
3: You sum that up perfectly. So it's the inconsistency. So instead of rain or snow being spread over kind of equally during a specific season or during the year, we're getting heavier precip. It's falling heavier in shorter periods of time. And then we'll have much drier stretches, longer, drier stretches. So, uh, you know, there's less consistency. Uh, farmers and essentially everybody that counts on the rain uh, can't count on it uh to come when you know it used to come uh and that causes major problems because obviously if you're 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 causing these downpours to be much stronger the ground simply cannot handle all that rain in such a short period of time and we saw that happen in tennessee i'd also say that you know that was due to first of all we have more moisture in the atmosphere for every two degrees fahrenheit of warming we've seen two degrees fahrenheit of warming we see eight percent more water vapor in the atmosphere that doesn't sound like much but it does make a difference but in addition there's this slowing of the jet, which is exactly what was happening this past weekend, which when you combine those two things, and they, they both are driven by climate change. The jet is, is a little bit debatable uh, in the science community still, but there's lots of evidence for it. When that happens, you get these these really heavy bursts of precipitation all at once, and then you might go wild without getting rain. We need it to happen consistently. Otherwise, it causes problems.
2: So I remember watching you on the evening news Talk about this traffic jam of systems last week, a couple of weeks ago, mid August, right around the time of Tennessee and Henri. And it was like there was, if I remember correctly, there was a high, there was a low, and there was a high, and things just got stalled. Is that what you're talking about?
3: Yeah, so there's a big debate in the science community about this. Uh, We think that a warmer Arctic is likely decreasing the contrast between cold and warm down near the tropics because the Arctic's warming so much faster. And by decreasing the contrast, it's decreasing the speed of the jet stream. When the jet stream slows down, it starts to become a lot more wavy. In addition, the highs there, the ridges of high pressure, like Pacific Northwest heat wave, those are essentially warmer. That means they're stronger, they're more intense, and that bends the jet stream even more. The more you bend the jet stream, uh, the more everything kind of stalls, right? A jet stream can go straight fast across the United States and systems will just move along but when the jet stream's doing this and it's kinked systems get stuck and that's a traffic jam in the atmosphere and what we've what we've been seeing honestly a ton this summer it's been happening for months now
2: so uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here and try to put this in a metaphor that audiophiles at least could understand the old way was like an AM sound wave and this new way you're describing is more like an FM sound wave Correct. It's a bit beyond my patronage. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> ben, help me out here. That sounds right to me. Uh, and, and, you know, and th- this is a different topic, but the hur- but, but with hurricanes, I was talking to a scientists, and they were saying something very similar that, um, you know, what they're now looking at is not that we're going to have, you know, 10 times more hurricanes than we've ever had before, but the ones that we do have are more intense. And they were very concerned and very focused on this issue of what they call rapid intensification. And Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong on this, because I'm not a hurricane expert. But, you know, these hurricanes that suddenly go from, you know, a one to a four in 24 hours. Um, So we did a story down in Florida where this company is actually sending out these drones that look like mini sailboats. And they're going to go out into the middle of these hurricanes to try to get better readings to predict when that's going to happen, see it happening in real time. So we can give better forecasts to people on land about when these things are going to hit and how intense they're going to be. But that's that's a climate change impact where because of all that that precipitation in the atmosphere, how moist it is, there's more rain falling out of these hurricanes and they can intensify much more quickly because of how warm the water is. They cook faster, right, Jeff? Exactly right. And we're seeing more cat fours and cat
3: fives all over the world. In fact, in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, a hurricane is now two times more likely to reach major category status when i say major i'm not talking about you i'm talking about cat three cat four cat five hurricane and that's big and then the reason why is because something like 80 or 90 percent of damage i think it's over 80 percent. it's been a while to pull it out of the recess in my brain here but 80 percent of damage is caused by the strongest of hurricanes cat threes cat fours and cat fives
2: right so you've hung with us this far folks you're nearly through segment three and i promised you the optimistic side of this or at least the Here's some things we can do about this side of the conversation. And I'm not going to just have that in one segment, segment four. We're going to start it now. Ben, what are some of the things you are finding that if not create all the solutions, at least point at some solution oriented directions?
1: Yep. Um, I mentioned methane earlier. So that's something Mm -hmm. that we could do pretty quickly. That's do We know how to do that. It's just a matter of spending the money and having the regulatory
2: impulses to do that.
1: Yep. The scientists have said the technology exists to do this. A lot of it is just about capping abandoned wells uh, that exist out there. It's about getting the oil and gas industry to, to take these leaks seriously and make sure that they're not happening anymore. That could have a real impact. Which is
2: also in their own economic self-interest because less methane in the air is more methane that they are
1: containing and dealing with. Exactly. I mean, they're basically losing their own product by letting it you know, go up into the atmosphere. So there, there certainly is an incentive for them to do that. And some of this technology, the satellite I mentioned that will track, locate where these things are happening, let them know, then it's on them to go fix it. But, you know, the, the UN report was pretty clear. It basically said that we need to rapidly shift away from fossil fuels and that we need to stop putting CO2 up into the atmosphere by about 2050. So there's some clear benchmarks that as a world community, we're going to have to meet pretty quickly. And about
2: a minute to go, Jeff, I know you have an optimistic side of this as well.
3: Absolutely. And it's because of the economics. Uh, you, you love to think that people will do things just for the greater good. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But when the economics shift in your favor, everything seems to move a lot faster. And that's what we're seeing. Right. I mean, solar and wind energy is now as expensive and in some cases less expensive than fossil fuels. So certainly the economic incentive is there to move in that direction fast. There's still some governmental incentives on fossil fuels and whether or not that goes away, it's going to be difficult. You know that better than anyone. Uh, However, incentivizing solar energy and wind energy uh, and, and and the fact that they're just already as cheap as fossil fuels and getting cheaper very quickly, by the way, for me, it's the economics that makes the most sense. And that seems to be working its way out fast.
2: Jeff Baradelli, Ben Tracy. Our conversation will continue, and it will be eight minutes to an eight minutes and 30 seconds still on, on technology, optimism, economics, other ways that the planet can at least try to figure this out. It is not hopeless. I did not want an hour of climate change hopelessness, folks, and we're not going to have it. Stay tuned for segment four of the Takeout in just one second.
0: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: Welcome back. I mentioned uh, a moment ago, folks, that uh, for my debrief podcast, the audio documentary podcast, which is on a summer hiatus, yes, it's true, but you can go back to our archived episodes on all the best podcast platforms, and you can find a two-episode back-to-back treatment of climate change. And one of the people we talked to that was the top climate advisor for President Joe Biden, Gina McCarthy. And... One of the things that she said in that interview was, and she's been in these trenches from a regulatory and legal standpoint for the better part of 30 years, she was EPA director under President Obama, and she said, look, what I have learned is around this entire topic of climate change is an emotion of hopelessness, and I'm not dealing with that hopelessness anymore. I'm not going to talk about how difficult things are or how dire the circumstances are. I know that to be true, but to change people's behavior and minds, I have got to give them some hope about the future. And that's what this remaining seven or eight minutes of the conversation is going to be about. Ben, when you think about things you've actually seen out there as a reporter, what are the things that you found most encouraging, either in adaptation or economics, on this topic?
1: I think the thing that I continue to find encouraging is that when you do talk to scientists, they're still optimistic. And these are the people that are in the weeds about how bad things really are and how bad things really could get. Um, And I, you know, and I think the reason that they still have some hope is because they do see that there are things like adaptation. I I think one of the most uh, one of the most interesting things um, that we'll be talking a lot more about, I think, in the years to come is what's called carbon capture. So it's how do we actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere and do something with it? Um, This is a science so far that is that is not scalable or not proven to be scalable. Um, But it's something that we're going to have to focus on. And there are folks in the environmental community that don't even like talking about it because they think it kind of lets us all off the hook in terms of lowering emissions. If there's a way to kind of suck it out, do we have to do as much to stop putting it all up there? I think a lot of people would tell you we're at a point where we need to do both. Um, so I think carbon capture could be an interesting thing if, if they can figure out how to scale it, literally suck it out of the air and they're injecting it back into rocks. They're doing this kind of thing in Iceland right now. Um, that, that could be very interesting to see how that happens in the future. But a lot of this is going to be adaptation. How do we, how do we change how we live, where we live, um, to adapt to the the world that we're going to live in.
2: Jeff, how do you have these conversations with friends and family who you want to infuse, I would imagine, a sense of hopefulness?
3: Climate change is an opportunity. It's a challenge as well. And I think not framing it as, you know. And you don't
2: just mean that like corporate speak. You actually mean it's an opportunity.
3: I really mean it. In fact, I I, I wrote something when I was at school on this, a whole 10-page report on this, because uh, I truly believe it. The thing is, is we have to change everything to stop climate change. People like challenges, first of all. Uh, People like to overcome challenges. Framing it as a challenge is true. This is one of the greatest human challenges ever. But we certainly can succeed. There's no doubt about it. When I say it's an opportunity, it's a huge economic opportunity. Places where so much manufacturing has been shipped overseas, a lot of the stuff that we'll need for this renewable energy revolution can be built right here. And it has to, and the technicians have to be right here. And it's happening in the middle of America, not just in the cities. This is an opportunity to revive and put a lot of money back into not just the middle of America, but the whole country. And, and create jobs for people who haven't had great jobs in the past. It will. I just have to say one thing. There will be some fossil fuel workers who are going to have to probably, uh, their jobs won't be around it. And we have to thank them for for what they've done because they literally built our economic might on their shoulders. So we absolutely, absolutely have to take care of them. But the good news is in a lot of these same places, there are a lot of jobs in, you know, clean energy, energy efficiency. And in this new industry that has to blossom extraordinarily fast, if we are to save ourselves from the climate challenge.
2: And Jeff, real quickly, um, it's not because fossil fuels had a really good PR campaign that they dominated and built the modern global economy. They are outrageously efficient at a price point for energy output. True?
3: Absolutely. And they are integrated in every, everything that we do. Plastics, some people may not know this, but plastics are made from petrochemicals too. So they're integrated in every part of our lives. It's not an easy feat, to transition away from fossil fuels, but it's a necessity at some point and as soon as possible, according to scientists.
2: And Jeff, uh, Ben, I want to ask you this then to Jeff. So uh, it's my understanding that the planet and our environment is resilient. It takes a lot of punches from us before it really starts to get bruised and beaten down. And when we change our behavior on the positive side, let's say, for example, stop putting raw sewage in rivers and things like that, or acids or other irritants or chemicals, they bounce back. the, 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 the plant, This resilient planet bounces back. So there's kind of a exponential bounce back thing there too. So it's not like it will take a thousand years to ch- change this. If we change our behavior, there are things that can happen because the environment tends to bounce back. Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, and some of the models do show that if, if we do basically end putting CO2 up there, that we might go beyond 1.5 degrees of warming, but it might come back down. Um, so there are some models that are showing that. But I think we also are at a point where we have to acknowledge what we don't know. Um, you know, as Jeff was saying, that the climate models are all off now. Like Our ability to predict what will happen has gone awry because we have warmed the planet so much and we haven't experienced this. So there is something about we don't know how quickly things would bounce back or to what degree they would. Or are there real tipping points where no matter what you do after a certain point, that impact is just going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. But certainly, you know, to me, the big takeaway from the U.N. report is that all hope is not lost. This is still in our control. Um, There is, as we said at the top of this, there is warming baked into the cake But how warm it gets, how hot it gets, what impacts people see is still up to us. And this climate scientist that I was interviewing out in Colorado, she's a young woman who has a uh, uh, two-year-old daughter. And she said that right now, what is motivating her work is looking at her daughter's face every morning and saying, what kind of world do I want her to live in? And she said, I want to know that I went to work every day and did everything I could to make it the best planet she can live on.
2: So Jeff Berardelli is a brilliant scientist, as you've already figured out. He's also really good at broadcasting. So you're going to get 40 seconds, Jeff, to take us home on this topic. Go.
3: Well, uh, you know, I am going to have a daughter in, in just over two months.
2: Congratulations.
3: Thank you very much. This is on my mind. I'm glad Ben mentioned it, because the truth is, is that what we're doing now, it's not for us. We're old fogies.
2: The oldest fogey right here, right here, by the way.
3: It's for our children and there and, and for their children, we are what we're doing right now. We're making decisions that will affect humanity for not just decades, but hundreds of years. So we ought to be responsible and do the right thing, not just for ourselves, but for generations going forward. For me, this is a moral and ethical issue. I did it for that reason, not necessarily because of the science.
2: Hard things are worth doing. Doing the right thing is the right thing. That is Jeff Berardelli and Ben Tracy, our guests this week. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation for our radio audience. We need to say farewell, but for those watching on CBSN and listening on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. i Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I am Major Garrett. Our guest this week, Ben Tracy, and Jeff Berardelli, Ben, is our most important environmental correspondent at CBS. Let's just leave it at that. He has a fancy title. Go back to segment two if you want to get the title.
1: That's a small That's a small list of people, Major. <laughs> <laughs> and climate specialist
2: and meteorologist for CBS, Jeff Berardelli. So uh, to both of you, because we've never had this conversation with the two of you, and our audience loves the three threshold questions. Uh, so, Ben, you can go first. Uh, Most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your most favorite movies, and uh, you do a lot of flying, a lot of driving. So when you're on one of those long trips, what kind of music, if you're really going to get into something you enjoy, are you most likely to listen to, artist or genre?
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to give you two books. Um, I would say influential, and this is kind of odd. Uh, It's a children's book, technically. Uh, It's called The Little Prince. Um, but it's very much uh, about philosophy of life more than anything. And it's a book that I've given as a gift many, many times to, to a lot of people. Um, if your audience is looking for a book um, about climate change, and I know this is not like the, the end all and be all on climate change books, but I actually think Bill Gates' latest book about how to avoid a climate disaster, if you're somebody who is not a climate scientist, it's a pretty good read. It's pretty you know straightforward. And he acknowledges he's an imperfect uh, vessel for the message, given that he's a you know, multi-billionaire who flies around in private jet. But um, he does lay things out pretty clearly. Um, favorite movie of all time for me is Goonies. I could watch it anytime, <laughs> over and over and over again. An absolute classic. An absolute classic. It's so good. I was actually on the Oregon coast once on vacation where they filmed it. And the hotel had the DVD in the lobby that you could check out and watch it in your room. So that was kind of fun. Um, and then in terms of music, um, I'm a classic rock guy. So for me, a road trip is going to be Bob Seger. It's going to be Fleetwood Mac. It's going to be Bruce. Um, that's kind of my wheelhouse when I'm behind the wheel.
2: Excellent. So, Jeff, I can repeat the questions or you can take them and run with them as you wish.
1: Yeah, so, uh, well,
3: first of all, my favorite movie is Forrest Gump. I just love that movie. I don't, you know, I don't know. I I think it's such a great movie. Uh, Almost Famous, I love that movie too. Uh, In terms of books, this may come as a surprise, uh, The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer, because I think it teaches you to be optimistic and to go for what you want in life uh, and follow your passion in life um, and that it will pay dividends. And for me, I've found it to be true. And then the last one, oh, music. I'm completely stuck in the '70s and '80s. I have not moved out of the '70s and '80s. My wife's over there, and she's like, "I'm still listening to '80s music and '70s." You too, uh, you know. You know, I'm listening to the BGS. It's a little crazy, I know, but uh, I got stuck back in that era.
2: So you've both touched on that era at least generally. Uh, so I want to drop one band name and get your reaction. Steely Dan, love it. Jeff.
3: Honestly, I couldn't, I can't tell you I'm extraordinarily familiar. Oh, okay. Well, of course I know Steely Dan. Of course I know Steely Dan. I just can't.
2: Get yourself familiar and you will enjoy it. Ben?
1: I love Steely Dan. Peg is one of my favorite songs.
2: Excellent. Uh, From the album Asia. And if you haven't listened to that album, ladies and gentlemen, there are two songs on the album in addition to Peg, but the two absolutely immortal songs the title track, Asia, and Deacon Blues. Go rush to your platform of choice. Get those two songs, I promise you. Major Garrett promises you, you will not be disappointed. And Asia has one of the greatest drum riffs in rock history by Steve Gadd, a session drummer, because Steely Dan did almost all of his work with session musicians. Steve Gadd came in. Read the music once, did two takes, and you won't believe it. It will blow your mind, ladies and gentlemen. I promise you that. Go listen to it. You will enjoy. So we've got about two and a half minutes to go. I want to do a couple more things on climate change. So, um, Jeff, uh, again, one of the topics that comes up in this conversation is salinity in the ocean. Is that a problem? And if so, why? Well, salinity is an issue for the AMOC... It's, it's naturally occurring. let us I'm not being dumb about this, folks. It's there to begin with. Hello, I get that. Jeff, carry on.
3: In particular, there's something called the AMOC, which is I call the Gulf Stream System because it just, I think, makes it a little bit easier. So all this salty water from the Gulf of Mexico flows up the Gulf Stream, and it flows to near Greenland, and it sinks. The problem there right now is that Greenland is melting fast. A lot of fresh water is flowing into the northern Atlantic Ocean, And it's reducing the salinity or the weight or the density of the water. And it's not sinking. This circulation, we call it an overturning circulation, is the most important ocean circulation in the world. It controls the redistribution of 20% of the world's heat from the uh, tropics to the poles. So with all that melting going on in Greenland, it's slowing down the ocean conveyor belt. It slowed it down a lot over the past, you know, 50 years. And, you know, what, what used to seem like something, a, a breakdown at this complete breakdown and it's stopping would be hundreds of years away. Now, the IPCC says there's only a medium chance that it won't completely collapse. If that happens, it throws everything off kilter. So Ben had talked about it earlier, tipping points in the system. If we stop warming, we stop putting carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere tomorrow. Our temperatures will stop warming almost immediately. That's the great news. But if we get past a certain point with the Amazon rainforest or Antarctic or Greenland or this AMOC, the Gulf Stream system, we tip the system and we cause tremendous feedbacks that make things a whole lot worse. So we have to try to avoid, we don't know where those tipping points are. If we did, we would have hopefully solved this problem already. But uh, that's something we need to watch out for.
2: Ben, I want you to close us out with a conversation that you and I have had about a story you covered about uh, seaweed or kelp and the benefits there, farming that.
1: Yep. Uh, aquaculture uh, is basically what they're what they call it. Uh, we were up off the coast of Maine. And yeah, they're uh, they're basically growing seaweed uh, at the bottom of the, uh, the Bay of Maine there. Why? This is something that uh, well, one, it's a sustainable food. Um, so this is a way to to grow agriculture that's not creating a bunch of emissions. Um, it's also believed, and you know, I think it's going to take some scaling of this to, to find out how much impact it has, that this is something that also can absorb some of the carbon that's in the water. So it actually gets absorbed into the tissue of the plant and then can become a sustainable food source as well. So this is something that's actually happened all over the world. we're We're a little behind uh, on this issue. Uh, but we're starting to catch up. And you, you talked about economic incentives. You now have lobstermen up in that part of this country who are saying this is a better future for them uh, than lobstering, which they're real concerned about as those species start to migrate north as waters get warmer.
2: Excellent. Ben Tracy, Jeff Berdelli. Great hanging out with you, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. This has been The Takeout. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is
1: produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
2: If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.